Are you depressed because life is crazy? Everyone is terrible and nothing you do seems to make any difference? Well, today the Bible is going to tell us why that is not true. Oh, wait. The Bible is going to tell us today why that is true. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. I want to remind you all to like and subscribe. It helps us out, and it gets the gospel out there. Brandon, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, first of all, i got to mention that uh, there's some people playing basketball uh, directly behind us. Ah, uh, yes. So the the odds of that coming through in the audio is pretty much 100. percent Yeah. And sometimes the, a ball will hit this door or this <laughs> wall directly, and uh, will almost make me pee my pants. So if you get scared, don't worry. Uh, just basketball. Yes, we are yep. scared with you. Yes, yep. Sh- should be fun. Um, we're talking today about the book of Ecclesiastes. Wonderful. Is it? Uh, is it going to be a very um, meaningful uh, conversation today? Oh yeah. I mean, this is this is some deep stuff. Yeah. You know, this is like. Uh, that freshman in the philosophy class in college who is finally, you know, like been introduced to philosophy and thinks they know everything. Well, Solomon, he's a, he's a brilliant guy. I shouldn't, I shouldn't downplay Did him. Solomon write this book? Uh, well, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. <laughs> Kohelet did. But, uh, uh, yes. yeah, no, we'll get to that. Um, but anyway, it's it's very deep. It's, you know, very yeah, obviously philosophical, mm-hmm. pondering life's meaning and pondering just how can we, how can we live life in such a crazy, messed up world? Where everything is so temporary, right? right? It's great. It, it really does orient. I think this is one of the best um, apologetic books, meaning like defending the faith, like or even p- polemical, attacking false faiths. Right. To to see to to be challenged with these kind of ideas is very difficult. I think for the non-believer to hear, you know, these challenges of wait, how do you live your life when things are so meaningless and when death is coming? Right. That's a question you have to answer, and so I think this is this has been helpful for a lot of people in bringing them to faith. These kinds of ideas, these kinds of arguments, hundred percent. Yeah. So let's review a little bit um, where we at in the Bible because we're reading through uh, the entire Old Testament this year. Where are we at right now? Yes, yeah, so we've gone through the first five books of the books of Moses, right? The books of the Law. Yep. And then we went through the historical books, right? Twelve historical books, and now we're in the wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. So we've moved from narrative into poetry. It's it's you know a wisdom literature is much more um, reflective. It's it's practical. Yeah. It's a lot of things, but we've we've seen different t- styles within the these poetic uh, wisdom literature books. We've seen the book of Job first, and Job, as we mentioned, as one of my professors said, is the prologue to the Bible. It's um, how do we understand wisdom? How do we understand divine revelation and its place in thinking about God and thinking about life? And so Job challenges us with that. It's not just a book about suffering. It's a book really about wisdom. Right. Then we, we skip the Psalms, but those were there. We'll come back to those skip at a later the Psalms. date. Wow. I know. We'll come back to those at a later date for yeah. sure. And then we saw the Proverbs, which are a collection of sayings uh, of wisdom. We saw that it was, it was composed, uh, the, at least the bulk of it was by Solomon. Right. And it was written as a uh, message to his son, right? A father speaking to his son, teaching him how to be wise. And we saw that Proverbs really deals with the rules of life, with the, the general principles drawn out of Mosaic law. Yeah. If you do this, this will happen. The general principles that a lot of these are still you know, very true today, that there's a general principle. If you save money, you'll be wealthy. Or right. if, you, if you hang out with wise people, you'll be wise. But Ecclesiastes, as we mentioned, is going to deal with more of the exceptions. So Job and Ecclesiastes deal with the exceptions to those rules. Mm-hmm. And the, the complexity of life. 
So they're, they're very deep. So we're going to get into Ecclesiastes now. Now, I'm curious now, when you read this book, as you're reading through I'm sure you've read it several times, but did you find it, when you read through it, did you find it depressing, or did you just find it to be an honest assessment of life? I feel like I read it at different times, and I feel different ways about the book. For sure. You know, oddly enough, Ecclesiastes was actually, it was actually one of the first books I read in the Bible, like from front to back. And I remember... When I first came into the church, I was very, you know, anti-Jesus, anti-religion in any sense. And I read this book, and I, I feel like it just really spoke to the reality of human existence. I really resonated with it because I, I just saw the, the plain facts of what it meant to be human and kind of the meaningless of life. I felt like everything I was doing in life was kind of meaningless. And when I read this book, I was just, yeah, I was like, oh, this is true. <laughs> Life's, yeah. Life and all its aspects are kind of fruitless because, yeah, we die one day. So what's the point of life? So I actually, you know, found it very just honest and enlightening when I first read it as a young Christian. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely, when I read it through this time, I felt, you know, it's very honest. It's There are a lot of things that are depressing about the book, obviously, that are that are, are negative. But the overall message is one that it seems to be positive. It, right. Like the bulk of it focuses on negative things, but the ultimate message is one that is very positive. Well, I mean, and we'll, we'll get to more of it too, but I, I think you're totally right. As I, as I read the book, I'm reminded to hope in the things that aren't ultimately meaningless, and that's God and his plan. So ultimately, you know, so we can look, I can look to that and be reminded of the meaninglessness of things that I pursue that aren't of him, you know? So that's right. No, anyway. that's right. Well, so let's let's look at what Ecclesiastes is as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, what is Ecclesiastes all about? You know, if there's one book in the Bible that could have been written today, <laughs> it's Ecclesiastes, right? It's very skeptical, very, um, you know, emotional. You know, like I said, we said it's de- kind of depressing. It almost sounds postmodern. Yeah, it's definitely not, but it, it almost sounds that way. It has that kind of feel, right? And and it's one someone who's seeking meaning in life. And um, kind of and a so, subjective truth thing to it a little bit. It seems like sometimes, yeah. yeah. And, and again, he'll definitely come back to God's word is where we find wisdom and truth. That definitely is a common theme through all the wisdom literature. But yeah. at times, he's going, "Wait, it doesn't even matter if you're righteous or if you're evil. It doesn't, you know. It kind yeah, of feels that." So it's this is also strange because there's no like explicit like mention of like Israel in this or like the storyline that we're a part of in this part of the Old Testament. You know, there's nothing like that, and yeah. you know, so it's very strange in that way. Yeah, it does feel kind of disconnected. I mean, there is yeah. there is mention of you know this person being king in Jerusalem. There's right. that, that mention, but yeah, it feels very it feels very individualistic. Mm-hmm. You know, very self focused, introspective, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So it, it is very interesting, and um, and this word is used over and over again. It's actually the, it's vanity the, the first words of the book, right? But oh. vanity, vanity of vanities, verse oh. verse two. All is vanity. What's that word mean? And that word is, is hevel, yeah. and it means really emptiness or something that's fleeting, something that's that's going to be, you know, it's like smoke or vapor, mm-hmm. something that fades quickly. Right. And so that's what he's speaking to. It's, you know, vanity maybe doesn't translate super well for us. We don't know what that means, but what he means is not that it's, you know, prideful, but that it's fleeting, it's empty. Yeah. That's the idea. Some translations, I think, use meaningless, right? Yes. So. Yes, which is probably a little bit strong over the top. Yeah, yeah it's not that there's no meaning. It's just that it's so quick and it's so yeah. temporary and fleeting. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say fleeting is probably the easiest word for us to understand. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a vapor that that's here and then gone. James talks about this too, right? Yeah. No, for sure. And yeah, that's what I identified with the book when I was younger. But um, yeah, it's 
and you see this repeated ton, a ton of times in this book, right? This isn't a word yeah. that's just used in the intro, right? Yeah, yeah, 38 oh. times. 38 times, so it's that's used crazy. a bunch. That, like, that has to be a really high ratio for a word in one book in the Bible. Yeah, for, you know, 12 chapters, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know, I can't do math good, but that's like over three per <laughs> chapter. I mean, it's a lot. Um, you know, and I was thinking about this as I was reading this book. You know, the, the, all the deconstruction stories we've heard recently. What's, what do you mean by deconstruction? Uh, so deconstruction is this term that's used in the Christian world for someone who has essentially lost their faith, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and often it's, it's depicted in a good way. By these by people the as, they're, yeah. as they're you know, deconstructing their faith, as they're thinking through it, and they're tearing apart and attacking the foundations of what they believe in. The liturgist that podcast. It's a, yeah, the liturgist. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yes. If I, if I, if I ever want to feel very intelligent, I just turn on the <laughs> liturgist, and I just revel in the <laughs> foolishness. Um, but there, there's so many of these. I've seen so many of these recently with different famous Christian leaders, mm-hmm. and we talk about them when they come up, and it's, it's almost just become... Like, uh, you know, every couple of months, there's some sort of big name person who has left the ministry or left the faith entirely or has had an affair or whatever it might be. But people that have just walked away. And this is I mean, Solomon's life is very complex. Um, Clearly, Solomon is in view here. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll look at that. Um, But Solomon's life is very complex. But he this is a recounting of someone who's lost faith and regained it. Mm hmm who has come back to the only truth that can actually sustain them in this life, which is so fleeting. Um, so he's looking honestly at life and, and saying, I've tried everything and everything has failed and now I'm coming back to God. Right. So, so anyway, I guess it kind of leads us to the question of who wrote the book. Who wrote it? So the, the person introduced at the very beginning, it says the words of the preacher. I'm reading the ESV. Maybe your version says teacher or something like that. That word is Kohelet. Kohelet with a Q. <laughs> I don't know why it's put that way, but Kohelet. And it translates to something like, you know, the person who assembles people together, like an assembler. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea, everyone kind of agrees this is, he's assembling them for teaching. Right. So it's usually translated as teacher or preacher. Right. So it's so often, you know, and you read commentaries, they'll just refer to the author as Kohelet. Hmm. But I, you know, there's kind of a couple of views of this, right? We'll look at a few different verses that kind of clarify who this person is. So we see that the, the words of the preacher, verse one, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's narrowed down to a pretty small number of people right. that come from David's line. Again, there's always going to be people that are critical scholars that will say, this is someone who was faking this or something like that. Every I, single I book of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't necessarily <laughs> believe that. Um, I don't believe that. And then in verse 12, right? I, the preacher, had been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, or by wisdom, all that is done under the heaven. So this is a person, a king, who sought wisdom, okay? And then in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So this is somebody who has surpassed those that have come before him in terms of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and so this, who, who is the wisest king to ever live, the wisest person, the wisest son of David? Well, that would be Solomon. So that does, that does seem to indicate it's Solomon. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Right. So <laughs> this is the... The greatest king, the greatest person to ever live in Jerusalem, right. you know, up to this point. So, you know, some people say, well, he's the only king after David. So 
That'd be weird to say, but there was Saul and there, you know, so they, and there were other people that were great in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, I have been elevated to this position. So it, it definitely sounds to me like the traditional belief is the right one. Right. The traditional belief would be that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. There are other views, right? One view is that there's sort of this introduction at the beginning where it's speaking about Solomon and then it quotes Solomon and then at the end it reflects on Solomon so that the book was kind of composed by somebody but using Solomon's voice. Mm. But even if you do that, the bulk of the book would be by Solomon. Right. You know, I, I, unless you're just putting words in his mouth, which seems to get into the problem of inerrancy. Like it seems to get like confusing as to is this, you know, untruthful. Right. So that's a problem as well. Um, it's not a problem if somebody necessarily added some words to, to frame the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we see that in, in the Proverbs, right? We see Solomon's words and then other people's words. But the, the question is, who is that main voice? Who yeah. is Kohelet? And so, and so that for that, I would say the traditional view is probably the best. That this is Solomon toward the end of his life reflecting back on his mistakes and coming back to faith. Right. Remember, Solomon's story was a, was a complex one. Right. Right? I mean, he had incredible faith in God. He builds the temple. He's this picture of fidelity to God and wisdom that comes from God. And then he walks away from it. He has a thousand wives. Yeah, 700 (laughs) wives, 300 concubines. He builds pagan temples. He worships false gods. He walks away from God. And we don't actually have resolution to that story in the scriptures. Right. Aside from this story, which is, I believe, him at the end of his life reflecting back on that and saying truth and meaning and life can only be found in the true God, the God of Israel. So, so I believe that's, that's what we're seeing here. Solomon's return from apostasy, his deconstruction story uh, meeting its final end, which is that it's reconstructed and he's brought back to, to faith in God. Right. So this is, this is a very challenging book. Um, there's a lot of different opinions on this book. So depending on how you read it, it's going to be very confusing. So, and, and Song of Songs is very similar, as we'll see next week. Yeah. They're both very confusing books. So, so if you were to just lay out, you know, the overall point of this book, why is it written? Why is it in the Bible? You know, what's, what's the main point? Yeah, I would say, I would say that this book is, is teaching us that if you don't have God at the center of your life, that everything is meaningless. Mm-hmm. So it's pointing to different aspects of life that are meaningless from a human perspective. Right. We're going to hear this phrase used again and again, under the sun. Mm-hmm. Under the sun. What it's speaking of is a human perspective, a temporary perspective, uh, this world sort of perspective, right? Under the sun, as opposed to above the sun, <laughs> which would be which would be uh, you know God, God's yeah. perspective. Right. So he's constantly using that phrase to say, from this vantage point, everything is meaningless. Right. And he, he at the end will bring us to, and kind of throughout, but he'll bring us to, God is the true answer. Mm-hmm. So so we're, he's critiquing life. And, um, and we have to be careful not to take isolated statements in the book as proving too much. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, he says life is meaningless, therefore there's no purpose. Well, I think you should view it sort of how you view the book of Job. The book of Job has a lot of sections in the book which are said by characters that are you know, proven false at the end. So you can't take one verse in Job and build a theology out of it. You have to look at it in the context of the book. Right. So same here. It's it's a guy who's saying, here's my autobiography. Here's what I pursued. Here's how I failed. And so if you take one statement and try to build a theology off of it um, directly without context, you're going to be in trouble. Right. Like he talks about how the life of humans are no greater than the animals. Yeah. Well, he and in the same book, he'll contradict that. Right. Uh, and of course, the whole Bible contradicts that. So the question is, well, why does he say that? Well, he's talking about his journey 
and the meaninglessness of life that he saw. Right. So, should we get into this? Let's get into it. Let's start right. chapter one, huh? Let's do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of, I mean, we, we can't cover too much of this in detail, unfortunately, but hopefully let's give you some perspective on the book. So we see at the beginning, we see at the, the very start of the book that life is vain. Mm-hmm. Life is vain. So chapter one, verses one through 11, life is vain. Um, it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He goes on, he says, uh, verse four, a generation comes, a generation, go, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. On its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He's speaking to the cyclical nature of life. Right. That everything is this, this cir- cycle, the circle, that there's all this effort in the natural world, and yet nothing seems to matter. Right. Life is, life is just this giant uh, cycle. And, and he goes on in verse 8, he says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Mm. So no matter how much you see, no matter how much you hear, you're never satisfied. Um, this, I mean, this is, this is so true, right? He's hitting on something that's very true, and he says, What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. So he's saying that all of history is the same things happening over and over again. Yep. Is there any direction in this in this life? It all seems so meaningless. And again, if you're a non-believer, you have to admit, if you really dig down deep in your belief system, that that's true. Right. That through through all of the things that you might seek meaning in, that it's all empty. And so he's going to show that in different areas of life, the futility of life, the frustration that's present in yeah. all of life. The monotony. Like, how many people do you hear complaining about their job, nine to five, or, you know, whatever. It's the same thing. Everyone wants a unique job where they're totally satisfied with their life. And, yeah, even, you know, thousands of years ago, <laughs> the same truth for the human condition is true and talked about, right? Absol- so. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you're going to work, you're just paying the bills, and you're paying the bills so you can keep going to work, so you can right. stay alive to keep working. It's just, what's the point of that? Right. Yeah, it's very dark. And then he goes on to talk about how learning is vain as well. Yeah. So life is vain, the first 11 verses, but then verse 12 of chapter 1, learning is vain. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, I'm, I'm, I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, I, verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. So you're, you're trying to grasp wind. You're trying to hold something that can't be held. You're trying to contain the pleasures of life and yet everything just goes so quickly. Uh, I, was, I was blown away by 18 for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So, so not only is wisdom, you know, kind of vexing and meaningless and stuff. It doesn't like end in any like greater thing, but it's sorrowful. It brings sorrow to know more. Yeah. <laughs> the more you study, the more sorrowful you become, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's saying ignorance is bliss. Yeah. That's exactly. what he's saying. And later he'll talk about how wisdom is valuable, but in, in a lot of learning with, again, a detached from God, it just, it just brings you more knowledge of how broken mm-hmm. and, and hurt and ugly the world actually is. Yeah. Yeah, I think of uh, I think of Martin Luther and his story. That, you know, the more he knew and learned, you know, about his faith and himself, the more depressed he became. Until he realized justification by faith, right? So, yeah. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, life is vain. Learning is vain. And then chapter two, we see pleasure is vain. Chapter, mm-hmm. t- chapter two, verses one through 11, he talks about, you know, the food and um, women and all these things that, you know, should satisfy or the world says should satisfy someone and make them happy. Mm-hmm. They were not happy. Mm-hmm. Right. Verse nine, he was the, he was the greatest. He became great and surpassed all who were before him. And he says, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was a vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was yep. nothing to be gained under the sun. Yep. So as he's, he has everything he could possibly want, he, he yep. says, I, I, I tested myself. To, to with pleasure to see you know how much pleasure I could enjoy how much of life I could take in mm-hmm. and it was empty yep it was empty so I mean this is this is all getting worse and worse right so mm-hmm. life is vain learning is vain pleasure is vain well maybe the solution is to have wisdom is to really get deep into wisdom and in verse twelve we see wisdom is vain mm-hmm. verses twelve to seventeen wisdom is vain so I turned to consider wisdom madness and folly. Verse thirteen. I saw there was there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, so there is there is gain in being wise. But so does that make it good? Well, no. He says because verse fourteen, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. <laughs> no. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Mm-hmm. Why then have I been so very wise? Right. And so he says, what he's saying is, the fool and the wise person both die. Death is the final answer. So yes, it's, there's a slight benefit. It's better to be rich. Or it's better to be, you know, um, you know, good person. Or it's better to be all these things. He's saying, but there's some advantage to it. But in the end of the day, everyone dies. Right. And so this is this is a huge problem. And of course, they're forgotten as well. Verse 16: For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Right. I, you know, I feel especially like on a trivial note for the wisdom, you know, I feel like uh, in today's culture we can talk about like investments and all the wisdom that people seek to invest well and then COVID happened and then now just memes are the direction of investments. <laughs> it's, just like, it's crazy. It's like, what the heck? Yeah. People are profiting, you know, millions of dollars, you know, for no wisdom, it seems. So, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Be, be careful. Yeah. Like total fools are, have the advantage over the, the wise and yeah. investors who've been doing for, for 20 or yeah. for 50 years. To be fair, the fools are also losing money too. Of yes, of course. That, yeah. that also happens. But it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. How it just seems like, yeah. Everything is crazy. But in this focus on death, which we'll see throughout, this feels to me like the same problem Job faced in Job chapter 14. Yeah. Right? What I mean, what is the final answer? If I can't, if I don't have life beyond this life, then what does that mean? There's no hope. Right. And so he's dealing with that. Death can't be overcome. You can't beat death. We see, he goes on to say that, that work is vain. Verse 18 of chapter two, two to the end of the chapter. Labor is vain. Mm-hmm. Labor is vain. Why? Well, because whatever you work for is just given to someone after you. Right. So we see in verse 18, um, he says, I hate, hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And that person could be a fool, verse 19. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
In Solomon's case, he ended up leaving his kingdom to Rehoboam, who was a total fool, who squandered it, who yeah. split the kingdom, who wasted his wealth. So maybe Solomon already knew that Rehoboam was going to be a total disaster. I don't know. Right. But he's pointing out the, the reality of you work so hard to, to build up something and you might give it to a kid who totally squanders it. I mean, yeah, it's normal. How many stories you hear about that and even today? So Yeah, so all this work, all this effort you put in that at the end of life gets you nothing. It's just it's just gone, just like that, a vapor, vanity. Hevel, hevel. And verse 23 says, For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So all the work, all the good things you're trying to build can lead to stress and sleeplessness mm-hmm. and um, anxiety. So it doesn't seem to be helpful either. Mm-hmm. So we've, we're trying everything. We're trying every single way to know God and to follow him, or to, to know meaning, right, and purpose, and it can't be found anywhere except for God. And so he kind of gives a hint at that better way to live in verses 24 to 26. He says, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who, who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. So he's pointing to the answer, which is that God has to be the central, um, the, the center of your life. Yeah. I, I was reading, uh, you know, some perspective on this verse. It was like, uh, it was like an Epicurean view of it, like that, that phrase, you know, eat and drink, you know, and enjoy for tomorrow we die, you know, that phrase. Yeah. And this is saying something different, you know, eat and drink and enjoy, you know, but also like hope in God, <laughs> find your yeah. ultimate enjoyment in God, not those other things, you know. So it's the main theme of this book where it contrasts worldviews and it's saying God is the better way than all these other things that you'll find satisfaction in. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In chapter three, we, there's a focus on seasons and time, which is a major theme in the book as well. Because if that focus of death is so prevalent, right. he's thinking about, okay, time. And he'll end the book with thinking about the seasons of life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here, I mean, he, what he's showing is, you know, there's a season, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a huge list of, there's a season for everything. Mm-hmm. And a key aspect to wisdom is knowing when to apply it, right? Knowing the right time right. in which to do something. And so he's pointing to the fact that that life is complex, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that wisdom often feels contradictory. So we have to know when, we're, you know, when to apply wisdom in the right way. And in verse 11, he points to the idea of eternity. Now, this is very important. Verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's this, there's this eternity in our heart, this need for eternity, and yet it seems very dissatisfying to him. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Like, why is it that he's dissatisfied with this, this feeling that he was made for eternity? Well, because his life reflects vanity. So he wants to be in eternal. He wants to live forever. He wants to be in, in connection with that desire. And yet life is something very different for him. Hmm. So he sees, he feels that, right? He feels that everything is meaningless. He's living in this world that's decaying and dying, even though he wants to live forever. Again, it sounds a lot like Job. And he says, verse 14, I perceive whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So now we have this idea of the fear of God being brought in, 
which will come full circle at the end. But this, this is the connection to the wisdom literature, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. every book has the same theme of fearing God. Right. And so in verse 17, we see a reason for hope in that God judges people, mm-hmm. right? God brings a judgment and that's going to determine, right, uh, eternity. So he's pointing to that eternal hope of judgment. And, um, and then we see, you know, throughout all this, I think we we're seeing echoes really of Genesis chapters two and three. We, we see it actually really clearly in, in verse 19. He says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. All dogs go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, that is the th- where the theology comes from. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he's talking about the same idea of Genesis chapter 3, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, all of Ecclesiastes is, is examining what it's like to live in a Genesis 3 world. Right. But that phrase, you are dust and to dust you shall return, is right. from Genesis chapter 3 to the yep. man. So what you are exalted from the ground, but you'll return to the ground. And so he's reflecting on that and thinking about the goodness of God's creation in Genesis 2, but what was lost, and he's pointing to the fact that this means everything's vanity. Mm-hmm. If there is death, if everything just becomes dust again, why does any of it matter? And that's that's the big question of the book. So chapter 4, he examines different kinds of evil in the world, he talks about oppression and en- envy. Uh, he talks about how you work and you don't have anyone to give it to. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's bad if you give it to your descendant. It's also bad if you have no descendant to give it to. So yeah. no matter what you do, you're in trouble, right? Um, everything leads to the same conclusion that life is pointless, mm. that everything is vain, it's hevel, it's meaningless, right. it's empty. Chap- but now throughout the book, we do see some real amazing insights. I mean, this is a, a wisdom book and there's a lot of wisdom in it. Chapter five is one of those sections. Chapter five, I mean, just a really beautiful verses in chapter five. Chapter five, verse one, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. So he says, he says you have to fear God to draw near to him and you have to do it in the right spirit. And so there's this central idea throughout the book of coming to God bowing before him, finding meaning and purpose in him, fearing him, right? That's, that's the big idea. Right. And so you come before him and you come to, to listen, to receive from him, not to speak your words to him. Now, this is sort of contradicted a little bit in the book of Hebrews, where it says, come boldly to the throne of grace, right? Yeah. So it sounds very different. And I do think there's a different, you know, difference because of Jesus Christ. But the idea of respecting God and honoring God is still, still true. Come boldly knowing you'll receive forgiveness. Yeah, no, for sure there's grace. But, I mean, even thinking about communion, you know, you have to do communion in a right way. Otherwise, you're drinking wrath upon yourself, right? Yeah. So, you, see, you see aspects of this. We still don't, you know, treat God as, you know, what are the conversations? We don't treat God as our friend, you know, necessarily. Yeah. You know, because he is so much higher. He, you know, in a sense, we are his friend, but, you know, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So we see later in, the, in chapter 5, we see the vanity of wealth. In verse 8, um, verse, verse 10 says, right, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Mm-hmm. That's, that is one of those ironies of life, that if you love money, if you, if you worship it, you'll never be satisfied. Right. You'll never be satisfied. 
And so in verse 18, he says, Behold, I've seen, I, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Mm-hmm. So enjoy life while you still can. That's, that's a message that is so prevalent in the book. Now, let's get to chapter 7. Chapter 7 has some, some great aspects of wisdom in it. Uh, I love this. And, and he really is reflecting more and more on death. And in verse chapter 7, he looks at it in a very positive light, in a sense. Chapter 7, verse 2, he says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And then verse 4, the, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. So don't go to, don't go to a party, go to a funeral. Right. And why is he saying that? He's saying because when you go to a funeral, when you go to a place of mourning, you start to reflect on your life and you will live your life in the best way for the best purpose because right. you understand something that, I mean, for us, and back then they dealt with death a lot. Right. For us, we don't deal with death a lot. That's why when we get one virus that can kill, you know, can kill you if you're already basically dead, um, we we flip out, right? right? And we do. I mean, like in terms of historical, I don't want to diminish anyone who's had, you know, concerns about COVID, obviously, but in terms of historical diseases, right? this ranks very low. Right. It does in terms of, the you know, what kind of percentage it can affect. But for us, it is so shocking because we value safety, we value health, and we believe that we can, you know, live in the house of mirth. But he's saying, consider death. So I think it's a good thing in some ways for our society to be thinking about the fact that they could die from a disease. Mm-hmm. It was always true. Right. Could die from their house falling on top of them or anything else, right? Yeah. But to, to consider that, to think about that, to understand that death is the end, and so we have to have some sort of greater meaning beyond death mm-hmm. is so important. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's totally insightful that, you know, being presented with death causes us to actually think of the right things and to to, to make us dwell on the, the things that actually matter. I mean, uh, I, I, think it was, I think it was Jonathan Lehman I was listening to one time, and he said one of his favorite um, places to teach the gospel is actually at funerals because people are so receptive and, and broken and reflecting on what happens after this life, not just all the things that are in this life, but what happens next, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I had the same thing when I did my first funeral. I talked to a um, Laura's uncle, who's a who's a wise, you know, pastor. He's pastor for thirty plus years, and you know, I was like, I've never done, I've done weddings, I've never done funerals, and he said, no, funerals are are better than weddings, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, what are you talking <laughs> about? And then he's not a guy who's like morose or somber. He's yeah. a very you know happy guy, and he's like, he's like, no, at a wedding, no one's no one's listening. You know, everyone's wrapped <laughs> up in the moment, and then the the feel and the bride and groom are looking at each other. He said, but at a funeral, everyone is, is thinking, everyone's reflecting, mm. everyone's listening, everyone's hanging on whatever you have to say. Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's what he's saying here. Yeah. The reality of death, um, makes humans think. And I think it should, death should make us fearful to be afraid of God, right? <laughs> to turn to him. Right. Yeah. Cause we can't turn anywhere else in the face of death. Right. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so chapter seven gives us some, some wisdom, I think that there's something that's very confusing, right? In verse 16, this is one of those big controversial uh, passages <laughs> in the book. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out of from both of them. 
So what's going on here? It sounds like he's saying, be a little bit wicked, be a little bit righteous. <laughs> what, what, again, he's talking about perspective under the sun. And he's saying, human self-righteousness, be careful about it. Self-righteousness, yeah. Yeah, be careful about going too much into righteousness and thinking that you, you have it all together. Be really careful, uh, find, finding that balance in life. So, of course, he wants us to be godly. He wants us to be truly righteous. But mm-hmm. he's saying in terms of human righteousness, be careful. And we, again, in, in our world, have a lot of forms of righteousness right. that we have to be, oh, be discerning about and say, no, that's not actual righteousness. Just because the world values that and this is modern, you know, Phariseeism doesn't mean we should value it as Christians. So, yeah. so yeah, so there's some things that are, are very challenging. I, I love, I really appreciate verse 21 of chapter seven. Do not take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. <laughs> that is such a great verse to give us perspective, right? When, I don't know. You hear, you hear your spouse say something negative about you and you go, oh my gosh, how could they ever? And you think about like, oh, have I ever said anything right. negative? I've ever had a moment of weakness. It's like, okay, we'll have to get rid of that. Or, you know, an employee or a, whatever, right? Yeah. He's saying, don't take it seriously. Yeah, um, you, you always bring this verse up in our membership classes when we're talking about uh, how to treat fellow members. Yeah, let <laughs> things go. Do you know that you're a terrible person and so you shouldn't take to heart things that people say? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty terrible. I've... I've said things that are not nice. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of wisdom in this book. So let's let's move on. Let's actually get to the end. We've, we've spent a lot of time on this. Let's get to the very end of the book. I know we're going to skip a little bit, unfortunately. But how does the book end? Well, chapter 12 brings the book to an end. And he talks about the very end, the stages of life. He talks about youth, right? Verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So you kind of get the impression that he's speaking to young men, as Solomon did in his other books, right? Mm-hmm. If you're young, remember your creator. Right. You, there's all this meaninglessness in life. There's all this emptiness. There's all these things that make no sense and that will lead you to nothing. Mm-hmm. You will die. You'll be dust in the ground like everyone else unless you remember your creator. Right. That's the message of the book. And he goes on to talk about the, the end of life, right? Remember your creator before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And so he begins to speak of old age, right? In these next few verses, a lot of things that are confusing. But th- looking about verse 3. Right, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. What's, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about your body decaying, right? The pillars are, are trembling, right? The strong men are bent. Your, your back is bent. Mm-hmm. Your, your grinders are few. Those, these are your grinders. <laughs> yeah, you lost a lot of your teeth. That those who peer through the windows, right, are dimmed. Well, he's talking about your eyes. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about how things begin to fail you. Life begins to fail you. So before that happens, turn to God. Before right. you lose your strength, turn to God. Use the best years of your life to serve and follow God. And if you are at that point, if you're, you're nearing the end of your life, turn to God still. That's all that matters. Right. Because what's going to happen after death? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's either you follow God or you face his judgment at the end. So the book ends with verse 9, uh, chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And then in verse 11, he says, The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So goads are 
things that you would use to prod someone, to poke someone, kind of like a little stab to get them, to spur them on. An animal, right? Would you use it for an animal? So a goat is not a good thing, but these sayings are meant to move you into action, mm-hmm. to move you in life, to, to keep you fixed in place, right? Like, in, like a nail. And they're given by one shepherd. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making much many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So, don't be be careful about seeking too much knowledge. Focus on what really matters, which is God's word, what the Great Shepherd says. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Now, I always think when I read this verse, I always think about the library at the Master's University, where I did my undergraduate work. Um, as you walked out of the library, right? Just imagine like you've been in there for hours studying because of assignments given to you against your will. <laughs> Over the door in big, huge letters was this verse, right? <clears throat> of making many books, there's no end, and much study is the weariness of the flesh. I'm like, of all the books, all the verses you could have picked, you had to pick that one just to mock us. But it was a good reminder. Yeah. Be careful not to make your life just about those things. Focus on God and his word. And then the final word, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. No. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret, whether good or evil. Fear God. That's mm-hmm. the final message. It's the same as all the wisdom literature. Right. Fear God. If you don't have that, you have nothing. Right. What a, what a great, I love this book. What a great book. It's an awesome book. Um, how does the gospel connect with it? Well, I, I, I would say that if you're looking at a meaningless world mm-hmm. where everything is meaningless because we face death, right. then that obviously connects us to Christ. Mm-hmm. The fact that he has entered into this vain, fleeting world has taken on that same, that same human nature, right, with its fleetingness, I guess right. you could say with the fact that he lived for just over 30 years and was killed, right? Very very temporary, very short thing. But he gives us meaning to this life under the sun by his death and his resurrection, right? Mm-hmm. He dies to pay the price for our sins, to rescue us from our sins, and then he's resurrected to give us a new way of life, right? to bring us back to the garden, right? Yep. To give us hope beyond what we have in this life. And that's why I think about 1 Corinthians 15 and, and Romans 8 as two passages that I think really connect to this well, right? First Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection Mm -hmm. and the conclusion of that entire section by Paul is to say this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Mm -hmm. Your labor is not in vain. It's not vain anymore. It's not empty. It's not hevel. Yeah. Because the resurrection gives us hope and really certainty that God's going to make something out of our efforts in this in this world. Right. If we're living for Him, there's there's no vain living. The second second place I would go is Romans chapter eight. I got this from Tremper Longman and Dillard in their book. And in in Romans eight, we see this idea of the frustration of the word. And this word frustration that we see in Romans eight is that word hevel. Mm-hmm. It's a translation of that word hevel in Greek. This is what he says. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or frustration, that's that word hevel, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. No. For we know the whole creation has been growing together in the pain of childbirth until now. So how is God going to redeem this world that is frustrated, that is 
meaningless, that is empty, that is vain, through the resurrection. Right. As we're transformed, the creation is transformed, and God gives this world stability. It endures right. beyond this life. Right. And so live your life now for eternity. Right. God's put eternity in your heart, and he's, he's also going to resurrect us and put our physical being into eternity as well. Yeah. And bring those tensions together that the, the author of Ecclesiastes was was worried about and struggling with. Yeah. Well, thank the Lord that He's made this world meaningless in some aspects, so that we turn to Him for purpose. Because the problem of death is fixed in Jesus Christ, resurrection, man. That's right. So that's right. That's all we got for today. Um, go out into your meaningless lives, uh, but remember to fear God and uh, let's put your hope in Him because He has life and life abundantly and meaning and meaning. Uh, Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week.